Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Well, what would Dr. King think about the siege of the Capitol? This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. And the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. But what would he say about this particular bend? Four years of President Trump culminating in a violent insurrection. Emory University professor Audrey Gillespie, who has written about the legacy of the civil rights movement in American politics, joins us to reflect on how Dr. King might respond to the current political moment and the pandemic, which have exposed glaring inequities in our society. We're also going to talk with her about Kamala Harris, who will make history this week when she becomes the first woman and woman of color to be sworn in as vice president. And welcome, Andre Gillespie. Good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. I guess the place I'd like to begin with you is just talking about, well, perhaps uh, Martin Luther King's, and we honor him today on this day. Um, most famous speech, of course, is the I Have a Dream speech, but there's also um, the speech uh, that I refer to about the long arc of the moral universe bending toward justice. And on January 6th, you have to ask yourself, and I know you have probably asked yourself, I've asked myself, what would Dr. King's response have been to that insurrection as well as to these inequities that have been revealed by the pandemic? You know, I think it's important for us to note that we don't know what Dr. King would have said because he didn't live long enough long enough to be able to weigh in on these matters. But assuming that he, you know, sort of kept on the same vein and on the same trajectory that he was in when he was killed in 1968, you know, I would expect that he would have mourned along with many people in the country um, at, at what we saw, which was, you know, violent and anti-democratic and white supremacist in his nature. And I think he would have used that as a clarion call to continue the fight, to recognize that the gains that were achieved in the 1960s could be vulnerable um, and that they and what we always have to be vigilant as a society and making sure that we are standing up uh, to uh, to racial injustice and that we are, are standing up to white supremacy. Sad to say, though, I, you know, I don't know how surprised he would necessarily be, especially if he had lived, you know, the last 52 years like the rest of us have. Um, where he would have seen fits and starts. And so, you know, I, I think not only of Dr. Martin Luther King today, but I also think of uh, Roger Smith and Philip Klinkner, political scientists um, who are actively working today in, in, in a book that they wrote almost 20 years ago called The Unsteady March. One of the things that we talk about is, you know, the, if the moral arc of the universe is long, right, we also have to understand that it's somewhat jagged and that it's fits and starts. And so we do go through uh, periods uh, where we'll take, uh, you know, two steps forward, and we'll take one step back um, as well. And so what we experienced for the last four years was in part a backlash and a response to the uh, breakthrough of Barack Obama's presidency. 
Um, but this doesn't mean that we have to stay kind of going backwards. There's an opportunity to go forward and we should be prepared for backlashes and set and setbacks when they come. Well, as you indicated, uh, we are in a different time realm now that was so much more polarized during Dr. King's, I mean, politically polarized uh, day. And there were, we're now living in an internet uh, world and an alternate universe of facts and uh, all kinds of conspiracy theories and so forth. But what I'm interested in finding out from you uh, is the fact that Dr. King stood for civil disobedience uh, against armed rebellion and uh, one wonders when you have people who are trying to start a race war and who are coming to the Capitol armed and so forth, uh, what he might have said of that given his philosophy which was embedded in the thinking of Gandhi and Thoreau and civil disobedience leadership. Um, well, I mean, he would have opposed it. I mean, he would have opposed it on the principle of what they were standing for, which is, you know, overthrow of a democratic election. Um, he would have over, you know, he would have opposed it on the grounds of white supremacy, but he also would have opposed violence. Um, and so I think he would have come out against that. I also think that, you know, people have tried to create the false equivalency that because um, some protests that happened in the wake of George Floyd's murder uh, did uh, become violent, uh, did involve vandalism, that that all of a sudden defines Black Lives Matter. Um, and therefore, you could actually equate uh, violent disturbances this summer with the violent disturbance at the U.S. Capitol. They are so not com comparable to one another. And I think he would be among the first to call that out. Um, first, uh, nobody associated with Black Lives Matter has talked about, uh, you know, trying to go and invade the Capitol to try to overturn the results of an election, um, even elections that they don't like. Um, you know, nobody in Black Lives Matter, you know, has has proposed, you know, taking pipe bombs to, you know, the DNC and the RNC. Nobody, you know, set up a gallows to try to, you know, uh, uh, to try to kill the vice president if he didn't comply with overturning the results of, of the election. So, yeah, some violent things happened this summer, but they pale in comparison to what we witnessed on January 6th. And we have to uh, acknowledge that. Um, and those who perhaps didn't support the violence at the Capitol, but supported the incendiary language that led to that moment, have to take a moment of reflection and responsibility and take ownership of that, as opposed to trying to blame it on you know Antifa, who clearly wasn't the driving force behind the Capitol siege. We're talking with uh, Dr. Andrew Gillespie. She's Associate Professor of Political Science at Emory University. What's on your mind this Martin Luther King Day, and what lessons do you draw from the Civil Rights Movement, and how do you apply them to today? You can give us a call now. We invite you to be part of the program. The number to call, toll-free, 866-733-6786. That number again for your calls, 866-733-6786. You can also, of course, get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. And Professor Gillespie, I'm interested in um, your thoughts about, since we're talking about Martin Luther King's philosophy on this day, there was a book uh, that was published a while back uh, called The Sword and the Shield. I don't know if you're familiar with it by Peniel Joseph, who is a prominent civil rights scholar and uh, professor at University of Texas. And what he says essentially in the book, it's a kind of dual biography. He says that uh, uh, and this is a book that's been praised uh, by, you know, a number of uh, black scholars and, and leading black activists, Henry Louis Gates and Michael Eric Dyson and so forth. Uh, the book uh, essentially says they were much closer together than most people realize. Uh, and they actually, uh, it's not to say, uh, let me, many people do say Malcolm X is by any means necessary and he was somehow uh, 
in favor of her countenancing the necessity of violence where King was always about nonviolence, but they were together on the idea of freedom, on the idea of civil rights, on the idea of human rights, on the idea of advancing the condition. Uh, and we'll come back and get your thoughts on that as well as our listeners when we return. I see we're coming up on a break here and we'll be back in just about 60 seconds, excuse me, about 10 seconds. We're going to be gone in 10 seconds for 60 seconds. Stay tuned. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking with Dr. Andra Gillespie, who is Associate Professor of Political Science at Emory University. And what's that in your mind on this Martin Luther King Day, this day set aside to honor the great civil rights leader? What lessons do you draw from the civil rights movement and how do you apply them today? You can join us and we invite you to do that toll free at 866-733-6786. The number for your calls Again, is 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. And before we went to that break, uh, Professor Gillespie, I was just asking you about the notion that's in a thesis of this book uh, that I alluded to uh, by Peniel uh, Johnson about um, just the the sense that, um, Peniel Joseph, excuse me, the sense that... um, there is a connection between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King that has often been denied because of the silo of violence versus nonviolence. Um, you know, and, and, and while that's an important distinction to make, and I think it's an important distinction that when people talk about violence, um, whether we're talking about Malcolm X or we're talking about the Black Panther Party, um, or we're talking about Robert Williams, for instance, who uh, was prominent in the North Carolina NAACP, um, it was more about armed self-defense more so than anything else. It wasn't about provocation per se, um, but it was about being uh, defensive um, and sort of understanding that violence was being waged on black communities and on uh, black bodies. And so what what do you do and how do you respond? Um, and so, you know, I think that, you know, the differences in interpretation really reflect sort of differences in how people interpret how one is to behave meekly. Um, and so being meek isn't being a doormat. Um, being meek isn't sort of, you know, pretending that bad things aren't happening. Um, but there's a way to sort of harness one's power. And so King's interpretation of nonviolent resistance, you know, rooted, you know, in, you know, what he learned from Mahatma Gandhi um, was to take the moral high road. And then from just a strategic standpoint, it actually put people into a position to elicit sympathy um, and to shame them um, into better behavior. So when you see people sticking dogs and water hoses on children, Um, you know, in the 1960s, you know, merely for them to be able to get public accommodations or to get the right to to vote, right? It actually sort of that that contrast in brutality versus pacifism sort of shows the righteousness of the cause of the marchers uh, versus the inhumanity and the brutality of those who were seeking to maintain a vicious system of white supremacy, that's but ultimately, well yeah, the cause for all of it is self-determination 
and all of it is the cause uh, for freedom. And so it's just a question of tactically, what's the best way to get there? What's the best way to achieve freedom? So ultimately, they're, they're both talking about freedom. Yeah. Um, and so, there, you know, there are more similarities than there are differences, but we like to focus on the tactical differences. Yeah, and I think you nailed it. I, they both are talking about freedom. Uh, let me bring a caller on here. Eric joins us. Eric, good morning. Yeah, um, I think uh, I'm just a little bit concerned that the original agenda and message, the broader picture that King brought to brought to bear, might be being lost at this point. You know, you know, he's very concerned that the grievances of poor whites were used against the you know poor blacks to sort of divide the poor, divide working people, and and uh, I think that he was concerned about working people in general, right? And what I see now is an emphasis on the progressive movement, you know, focusing on specific, very racial specific issues and kind of throwing the, the white working class or the, the you know, the, the working class in general under the bus. Right. So I wonder if we've actually sort of misinterpreted the broader uh, message of King that should, you know, be, evolve into the future. And we've, we've let, uh, you know, Trump you know, address the issues that, uh, you know, some of, some of the issues that uh, King intended for the progressive movement to deal with. Eric, I thank you for that call. And uh, Professor Gillespie, I think it is uh, true that uh, Reverend Martin Luther King was very concerned about alliances with the working class, the poor white working class. And also he was, uh, toward the end when he was assassinated in Memphis uh, by J James Earl Ray, very concerned also about fighting against uh, what we could call the military-industrial complex and the Vietnam War. Um, well, yes, I, I don't want to separate out or silo the, you know, it, the obvious interconnections between poverty and racism um, and, 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 and hypermilitarism, nor do I want to silo the experiences of uh, poor blacks and poor whites. But I want to sort of bring some history back historically in the United States. One of the problems with creating um, a multiracial movement around class is the problem of racism. So this is why historians will point out the fact that there hasn't been a really strong socialist or communist movement in the United States because uh, communists underestimated the extent to which racism uh, was actually pretty pervasive and how much whites, even poor whites, valued their whiteness to the point that they didn't want to be in political or economic alliance with poor blacks. Um, and one of the longstanding critiques of progressivism is that it uh, casts a blind eye to racial differences that will further disadvantage poor blacks relative to poor whites. That was part of the problem why Bernie Sanders in 2016 had trouble gaining traction um, in African-American communities when he was running for president against Hillary Clinton um, because people didn't like his emphasis on class and actually thought that he had uh, racial blind spots. So um, I'm not sure that I see an overcorrection in the progressive movement um, in terms of talking about race. Uh, there have been decades of silences. I mean, we could look at the history of labor unions in the United States. So, you know, arguably labor unions are progressive, but labor unions were segregated. Um, and so if we think about like our big major unions, like even today, even as we talk about how they've waned, right, these had their origins in not accepting black people. So there had to be a separate black labor movement. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, sort of pitting groups against each other 
one is helpful and I understand the sentiment there, but I also think it's important to not be blind to history and also not be blind towards uh, the people who might be drawn to Donald Trump, who on the surface might look like they may be drawn towards economic policies, but through their actions and behaviors, and sometimes as we can demonstrate empirically, are being drawn because of a strong attachment to whiteness or an an, an and or sort of an attachment to forms of, of, of racial resentment. And so what you see when people are coming against uh, sort of, you know, Black Lives Matter and sort of activist groups, or sometimes when you see people storming the Capitol, what they are protesting is a loss of status that was in fact artificial, right? So it's a status that's invested in whiteness that shouldn't normatively have ever been the case, but yet people find it really valuable and they're actually willing to commit seditious acts in order to help maintain that hierarchy. And here's a comment from a listener named Pam who says, I miss Dr. King even more in these unsettled times to be able to hear a voice of reason is needed even more. And I'm going to bring a caller on here. David, join us. You're on the air. Oh, morning, all. Uh, Happy New Year. Um, I'm glad I'm following that previous caller. Uh, I'm interested in the same topic, uh, and it was uh, maybe more Medgar Evers as opposed to Dr. King, uh, who was talking about uh, economics and and uh, true value of a person, uh, where it used to be the concept of money revolved around the reputation of the person. And if you had a pile of money, it reflected that you were actually, you know, a hard worker or something like that. But if a thief comes along and steals all of that money and uh, has a great big pile of money, does that mean they have a good reputation? So it used to be that money reflected a reputation, but it no longer does. It, it simply is a pile of numbers. So uh, when I, what I'm looking at is the value of our nation after a guy like Trump who has devalued our currency and devalued the reputation of America by, you know, pretending that uh, he's, you know, a pile of gold instead of uh, a person that cares. And so I'm, I'm just looking at uh, how can America regain its value again, regain its, its reputation again, uh, and become a, a good citizen in the world. Well, it's a big question, and it's a question that deserves a lot of time to mull over, and I thank you for bringing it up. We're talking, of course, about more related to the legacy of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, have any thoughts about that caller's question that he raises, uh, Professor Gillespie? So I mean, as, as he was thinking, I was thinking about uh, Weber. I was thinking about the Protestant work ethic. And you know, I think that in our country, I think we've been socialized to associate uh, perceived wealth with success, goodness, and power. And that's not always the case, um, right? And, and that's part of the thing that we're trying to dismantle when we start to talk about privilege, right? So if some people, you know, have ended up in an economically comfortable or even, you know, very wealthy situation because they've happened to, you know, inherit it, right? Then that's something that they've gotten by matter of birth. That's not something that they've gotten by virtue of, you know, their own work necessarily. Um, and we don't begrudge people, you know, who, you know, have been, you know, in those situations, but, 
you know, I think it does challenge the idea of might is right, or because I have, you know, all of the, you know, cookies or tokens that therefore I must have done something right. And so that somehow justifies my behavior. Um, so I hope that, you know, we can learn to try to uh, disentangle um, and always disassociate wealth from goodness um, and especially like go deeper and actually look at sort of okay well how did people actually acquire uh, their wealth what did they do um, and, and if they have and if they've done everything ethically then you know we can rejoice in their success but if they haven't then I think we can also critique them um, and make decisions about whether or not we want to align with them whether or not we want to vote for them if they're running for office whether or not we want to patronize their businesses. Before we begin the segment, uh, I had indicated, Professor Gillespie, that I wanted to talk with you about a vice president-elect Kamala Harris, and indeed I do because I know you've written a great deal about uh, African-American politicians and pointed out that uh, she was really has been less of an outsider than, say, Cory Booker or uh, Barack Obama. She worked her way up as an insider, and that's both a strength for her, as many people see it, and also something she's been criticized for. But the fact that she's, as a multiracial woman, has a different effect in terms of truth to power uh, than somebody like Cory Booker, Barack Obama, or for that matter, Martin Luther King. And I'd like to sort of uh, suss out from you uh, your thoughts along those lines, because um, I, I think we're talking about her as a potential major figure in terms of bridge building, aren't we? Uh, well, I mean, she's taking over as the number two spot in an administration that is tasked with help rebuilding America from a very tense and turbulent four years. So just by virtue of her position, she has a responsibility to try to act on that. And we'll have to wait to see how she and President-elect Biden um, carry out this monumental task, because it seems that you know, the health of our country and our institutions are at stake if they don't. Um, you know, I, my work, I've typologized, you know, where Black politicians of her generation kind of fall in terms of uh, whether or not they seek to be racially transcendent, what their ties are to uh, the Black political establishment, what their ambitions are. And so she is similar to President Obama, to Senator Booker, I've written books about both of them, um, in that, you know, they all use racially transcendent kind of postures in order to reach out to people. And I think for people like President Obama and Vice President-elect Harris, the fact that they're biracial, I think probably helps them and gives them a particular sensibility to want to lean in that direction. Um, Vice President-elect Harris in particular, you know, would also be incentivized to do that because, you know, she represents a majority minority state, a, a state that has, you know, a large and very diverse population. And in particular, with respect to, you know, her African-American and her Asian-American heritage, she comes from groups that, you know, are not going to be the numerical majority of California. So she's had to figure out how to be a bridge builder. Um, so in that respect, I do see common threads between her and other types of politicians who tend to be the ones that are most likely to win statewide office and, you know, the ones that have done well in terms of, you know, national office. Um, those skills that she's learned, the style that she's used could bring a, a, a different and a helpful sensibility to the White House at this very critical time. So not just by virtue of her identity as a Black and an Asian woman, but also her experiences in law enforcement, her experience as an attorney general and as a U.S. senator might actually allow her to be able to uh, bring key stakeholders to the table 
to discuss issues um, of importance. So not least of which would be policing. And so while she garnered some criticism in activist circles because of her prosecutorial ties, it's in fact that resume experience that probably might allow her, if she takes it up as her issue portfolio, to be able to help to move the conversation forward um, about policing reform and ways that the federal government can help intervene to bring about positive change at the state and local level. It's good hope that you're signaling us here. I want to uh, also read some emails that are coming in. Speaking of hope, here's Thomas who says, my reaction to the election is still profound joy. I keep finding myself singing Pharaoh's army got drowned. Oh, Mary, don't you weep. I'd love to hear church bells ringing across the land when Trump leaves office. Robert writes, Republicans from the president on down who promote the lie that the past of this past election was stolen dishonor Dr. King and all those who had their heads cracked and died across the South for demanding the right to vote. And here's Ben who writes, Dr. King wrote the following from Birmingham jail, quote, I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice and that when they fail in this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress, end of quote. What does it say about our country when law and order is still such a powerful weapon in preserving white supremacy today? And a listener writes, I'm seeing GOP operatives like Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany and Ivanka Trump tweeting out Dr. King quotes. It doesn't feel performative. It feels hypocritical. How do we make people care and live out Dr. King's message the other 364 days of the year? That is a big question, Professor Gillespie, that still weighs on us, I think. Yeah, I mean, people have used Dr. King as a cipher. So I think people like the Dr. King of the last part of the I Have a Dream speech because it's very hopeful, it's very optimistic, it's also very conciliatory. They forget that the earlier part of the speech, he was calling America to task to not living up to its ideals, the one that it lays forward in its founding documents. Um, And then if we also look at his later writings, they were strident. And also, like, even in the 1960s, when we think of Dr. King in his heyday, public opinion was actually pretty bitterly divided. Um, And he wasn't the most popular figure. He's been lionized in death. So what I would tell everybody, not just the people who might be performing sort of the sort of usual, let's say something nice about Dr. King and claim to have a dream today and not get into the things that he was saying that were sharply critical of America is to go read the other stuff. So it might be read the entire I Have a Dream speech as a starting point. Read the letter from a Birmingham jail, um, which is very pointed um, at white clergy for sitting around and doing nothing during the civil rights movement. Go read Where Do We Go From Here? Think about sort of not just the king who's on the steps of of the Lincoln Memorial, but think about the king who like, you know, uh, lost, you know, lost support, uh, lost financing uh, when he came out against the Vietnam War and deal with that king and not just the king that we all want, the king that's, you know, kind and friendly, Mm -hmm. Um, the king that, you know, isn't real if we consider him in all of his complexity. We've got very little time left, but I want to get Jacqueline on who actually heard Martin Luther King speak. Jacqueline, go ahead, please. Hello, my name is Jacqueline Beggs, and I live in Castro Valley. And in 1968, the thrill of my life and a turning point in my life was to go to the Anaheim Convention. It was the Democratic Convention, I think the CDC Convention. And Dr. King was asked to speak. And I had a very, very small group of people that was with me to hear him speak. To my memory, they didn't give him the big venue of the stage where they later called Bobby Kennedy from. This was for uh, to ask if he would represent the Democrats against the Vietnam War. And the message that King gave to me as I sat there almost front center row 
was that the Vietnam War was a racist war and that white poor people and black poor people have to get together and speak up. And I've done so ever since. I now, talked let me to say uh, that I, I'm glad you have the final word here, Jacqueline, and I appreciate your call and also appreciate very much, Andrew Gillespie, your being with us. Thank you so much for the time you have spent. Thank you. And again, uh, Andrew Gillespie is Associate Professor of Political Science at Emory University. And I guess remembering Dr. King, we should remember not only the importance of nonviolence, but the importance of moving forward uh, and helping the arc of history as much as we can. Please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.